don't know me, if you're here for the first day, my name is JT, and I'm one of the pastors here at Freshwater. So thankful that you're here today. As I always say, um, we want you to be wherever you are today. And so if you walked in the room and you're doing awesome, praise God for that. If you walk in and you're struggling with life or with sin or whatever else, we don't be a church where you pretend. We want to be a church where you can be where you are so that we can all move forward together. Um, and so it's not okay in Christ to stay where we are, but it's, it, it's, it's not okay though to, to pretend like you are where you're not and just get stuck there and get stuck in the same routine. Jesus wants us to grow, wants to be sanctified, wants us to know him, and wants us to experience the joy that is in walking in him. And so, as I always say, this is a safe place to have whatever question you have, to be wherever you are. And so please come find me after the service if you have any questions. Um, if you've turned to Exodus 20, already. I think TJ is going to read verses 1 through 21. All right. This is Exodus chapter 20 verses 1 through 21. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is the heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. Now when all the people saw the thunder, and the flashes of lightning, and the sound of the trumpet, and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us, and we will listen. But do not let God speak to us, lest we die. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. Thank you, sir. Hey, and by the way, if, if TJ, come here for a second. If you get a chance to thank TJ, he's like one of your worship leaders and kind of is like the head worship leader. And over the last, what, four or five months, everybody on the worship team had babies. And so there was like four people left. But TJ's been up here every week for like three months straight, where he's used to being on like every other or every third week. He's given a lot of time and a lot of effort to make sure our worship team did not fall apart during the time that everybody decided to be selfish and have kids, right? And so just thank him if you get a chance. Yeah. Sorry, man. He, he hates things like that. So anyway, um, okay, I'm going to start with some other scripture reading today. So obviously we're in Exodus 20. We're in our series, Kingdom to Kingdom, in the book of Exodus. But I want to read a couple things for you to get started. This is Psalm 1, 1 and 2, and I think we're going to have it up on the board. 
Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seats of scoffers, but his delight, his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. And in Psalm 119, 47 and 48, For I find my delight in your commandments, which I love. I will lift up my hands towards your commandments, which I love, and I will meditate on your statutes. I'll be real honest. When I was young, younger, those two verses might as well have been in a foreign language. Right? Because I grew up a Christian, but I kind of grew up a nominal Christian. We went to church, mostly. Like, off and on, we, we kind of were consistent at church. I feel like it had a pretty big impact on me. I feel like I got saved at a young age, and I felt like it really was the real, dear, real deal. But here's what I remember as a kid at church and as a young person in church. If you do the right things, and you don't do the wrong things, then you're a good Christian. That's really what I remember. I remember talk about Jesus, and I remember Jesus being my Savior. I remember that's important, but I, what I really remembered, what I really held on to, is do this and don't do this, and if you do that, then you'll be good, and God will be happy with you. That's, that's kind of what I experienced. So the idea of delighting in the law, delighting in the rules, the idea of loving God's commands, man, that was just completely foreign to me. Like loving those things. The law when I was younger was simply a way for God to keep me from doing some of the fun things that my friends were doing. Don't have sex, don't drink, don't cuss, don't do these things. Now, that, that may be an exaggeration. Even if it wasn't just keeping me from doing fun things, what, what the law was really doing was keeping me from being a bad kid. If I wanted to be good, I followed the, the, the rules. If I didn't, I was a bad kid. And, and that's, I wanted to be good most of the time. And that's what it came down to. Well, today in the book of Exodus, we're about to talk, preach this whole sermon on what you guys probably know is one of the most well-known things in the entire Bible, what, what the, the Hebrew would call the Ten Words, or what we would call the Ten Commandments. And so we've come to the point in Exodus where they've, they've been set, set free, they've been delivered from slavery in Egypt, they've come to Mount Sinai, the mountain of God, they saw God's holy presence fall in lightning and thunder and, and fire on top of the mountain, they heard God speak today, God actually speaks the Ten Commandments to them, and did you see their reaction? They were afraid. They felt like just hearing God's voice for the first time. This is the first time God spoke to all the people, they felt like they were going to die. Like literally going to die just hearing the awesome, power, powerful, holy name of God. And they said, Moses, we'll obey, we'll listen, and we'll listen to you, but please don't let God do that again. They were afraid. Right? And I'll just say this right now as we start off talking about the Ten Commandments. A healthy fear of God is a good thing. Right? We describe that in the Old Testament as fear of the Lord is about being in awe of the Lord. And that's absolutely true. Reverent, treating God as reverent, it's absolutely true. But um, anybody have a good father they were a little bit afraid of? I was scared of my dad. I, it was out of love, and I knew his discipline was because he loved me. I knew those things. I had an awesome dad, but I was still afraid of him when I messed up. And I was having a little healthy fear of an awesome, powerful God is a good thing. And I love this story. I love the Ten Commandments, even in this moment, because we get to see just how awesome and powerful and scary our God is. As C.S. Lewis described him, he is a lion, and he is not safe. He's holy, and he's good, but he's not safe. Not, not for us who are sinful. And so we're going to be really looking at what, again, the Hebrew calls the Ten Words, or we call the Ten Commandments. And so what we're seeing right now, if you were here with us last week, um, God is laying out his covenant with his people. 
God has told his people, like, you're, you're required to follow my covenant. And they agreed to follow it. We saw that in, in chapter 19, verse 8 last week. But the people didn't really know what the covenant was. And so the Ten Commandments is the beginning of this covenant, of this law that they were required to follow. And yeah, church, it is a list of rules. It's a list of laws and commands. But what may surprise you, and what I just did not understand growing up in church as a kid, as a young man, is that these laws are ultimately about love. They're ultimately about love. They are pointing us to what love really looks like. Did you know that? Have you ever even thought about that? That's what they're pointing to. Because in the end, it's not really the rules that the psalmist is talking about what he delights in. Or King David. It's not really the law that he loves so much, but what the rules, the commands, the law truly is pointing his heart to that he delights and that he loves. So today is really about helping us see the purpose of the Ten Commandments of these laws. Look, look kind of what, uh, at a big view, what's behind them. Because really what we should do is spend one week on each command, but we just don't have time for it. So we're going to take a high-level view and try to figure out why have these rules, why have these laws and commands mattered so much and had so much significance for 4,000 years. 4,000 years later, people still know these commands. Non-Christians might not be able to name all ten, but they've heard of the Ten Commandments. They're still controversial, even today. They still have so much influence even today. And so we're going to look at them. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to break them up into two sections. We're going to look at the first four as a group. And then we're going to look at the second six as a group. And really break down what the Lord is trying to teach us. And not only that, how the Lord through these can teach us to delight in his law. And, teach, and through that teach us to delight in him. So let's look at the first four again in chapter 20 verse 1. We're going to read 1 through verse 11. 1 through 11 one more time. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Okay, so as you see, God starts off just reminding them of what he's done. He's like, look, you were slaves to the most powerful country in the world. No one could have saved you. No one could have delivered you except for I. And I did this because I loved you. I've proven to you how faithful I am to you. So now I'm, I'm requiring you in return to be faithful to me. If I'm going to be your God and you're going to be my people, I'll keep my covenants with you. I'll take care of you. Now you have to prove, now you have to walk in faithfulness to me. And what does that look like? What does it look like to walk in faithfulness to the Lord? Well, the simple version of it, there's a lot more laws to come, right? But the simple, simplest version is how we're faithful to God is following these commands. 
is following these commands. And so let's look at the first one first. I know that's a big shocker. Let's look at the first command, which is arguably the foundation for every other command that's going to come after it. Right? You shall have no other gods before me. Verse 3. This one is so vital. It's probably obvious that it's vital, right? But it's so vital for a couple of reasons. One, remember, take this in context, right? The whole rest of the world worships multiple gods at this time. The idea of having one God is completely foreign. And the Israelites have just spent 400 years in Egypt. Think about that. For, just pause and think about what 400 years actually means for a second. Right? Think about 400 years ago where this world was. We say things in the, when we read the Bible like, oh, 400 years ago. 400 years. It's a long time. So they've been in Israel for 400 years, surrounded by a society and a culture that is built around lots and lots and lots of gods. Gods for everything. So the, the idea that the Israelites would now worship one and only God would have been a very difficult thing for them. Man, it's an obvious thing for Christians in America, right? There's one God. That's easy for most of us. But for them, this would have been really foreign and hard for some of them to accept. So we've got to cut them some grace having this being a difficult thing for them. Secondly, the reason this is so important. We may not worship false gods now, but we make things gods in our lives, idols in our lives, don't we? It's just constant war. Things that we give our hearts to, that we give our minds to, that we give our time to, that we give our money to. Listen, we even give our families to. So often we, in this world, we give all of our time, all of our families to things that have nothing to do with God and that even distract us from God. That are not necessarily evil things, but they derail us from making sure that God comes first, that no other gods come before him. And so, yeah, we may not worship false gods and false idols like they did in ancient times, but do you realize like all of the gods that they had were based off of the same things that we chase now. They just created an actual idol, worship an actual God. We just chase that thing. The gods that they created were about them having good careers, that the rain would come when it needed to and their crops would come up. They'd go worship that God so that would happen. How many in this room have ever given too much time and thought to their career, to their job, as a sacrifice of God? Right? They'd have gods like to sex and fertility and to children and to kids and those kind of things. And anybody ever made their child their idol in their life and distracted them from God? Listen, the false gods that they worshiped are the same false things we worship now. We just don't want to make an actual God out of it. They just created gods because that's what worked at that time. We're, we're at the same risk now that they were then of creating false gods, false idols in our lives to worship instead of worshiping the one who's actually worthy of it. We end up worshiping the creation instead of the creator. And it was the same thing 4,000 years ago as it is now. It just looked a little bit different. A little bit different. God is demanding that we worship him and him alone. Because he's the only true God. He is the owner and the creator of everything. And if any, we worship anything else, we are worshiping a lie. Don't we want God to not want us to worship a lie, but to worship him? God's not calling us to worship him and him alone because he somehow needs our worship. He created us to worship him. He's worthy of it. He's demanding it. But anything else we worship is a lie. And God doesn't want us to worship a lie. It's love why he's calling us to this. And he's worthy. And he's worthy. So the first command is don't have any other gods before him. Still so relevant to us today. And so is the second one, even though at the service it might not seem like it is. The second command is really part, part 1B to the first command. You shall not make carved images of anything in heaven. 
right? They're not, we're not allowed to make any kind of carved images at all. And so in the ancient world, they not only worshiped false gods, but they made literal, actual idols that they worshiped. And they thought those idols, when they created them, when they were fashioned, they had to be fashioned by certain people. They thought they captured the essence of that God. So when they worshiped at that idol, they felt like they were actually worshiping at least a piece of their God. And again, church, American Christianity, this might seem like a weird thing. Did they actually believe that an idol sitting there was their God? Man, I've been to India a few times. I've seen this very thing. A billion people. Like, India, and when I was in India, being Hindu and being India, Indian was not a different thing. Hinduism and being an Indian is the same thing there, right? And so a billion people still worshiping carved, carved images, right? 10, 15% of our, the population of this planet at least still do these things. This is not a, a weird thing even in, our, even in our world now. It may be to us. But this is a common thing even now. They believed it captured the essence of their God. I watched people bow down at temples and worship an idol on their face. Honestly, looking more faithful than a lot of us do. I'm not saying they were, but they at least, they at least put on a good show. So this is common even today. And it wasn't just that this image, this carved image, captured the essence of their God. For some reason, they believed that their gods could do about anything they wanted to, except feed themselves. It seems strange to us, right? But it was normal then. Right? And so the gods either allowed people or needed people to feed them. So they would bring food offerings. They'd bring sacrifices to, to their god. And this wasn't just about worship and honoring their god, which it may have been. But it was a way for them to put the god in debt to them for their crops, for kids, for whatever else. Listen, I feed you, then the god will be obligated to do this for me. And maybe the god would do it and maybe they wouldn't. But it was about this like quid quo pro, this, this trading. I feed you so you bless me. And listen, we don't think carved images is still important. What they represent is still relevant today too. We do the same thing when we live the lie that if, if we obey God's commands, if we do the right thing, God is, is somehow obligated to give us a good life, to give us what we want, to give us health, to give us desires, or maybe most importantly, to make sure that we never suffer. And listen, you can see how this was attractive, to have an actual idol to worship, right? We worship an invisible God. Hey, is that not hard sometimes to have to just believe in faith that he's there? Can you see how it might be attractive to have a God there like, that you can see, that has its essence? Not only that, but you can obligate them to answer your prayers. This is a thing even today with the prosperity gospel, telling you if you love God, if you do these things, not only will God bless you and give you the desires of your heart and give you the things that you want, you need, but, but like that suffering, should, suffering shouldn't even exist. If you're faithful enough to God, he'll take, basically take away all your pain and all your sufferings. It's all a lie, and it's been the same things that people have been chasing forever. If I do all of these things, then God, the gods can't allow these things to happen to me. No. It's not who our God is. Our God is not obligated to us. So God is making the point to his people. He is not a God that can somehow be captured in an image. Right? He is the God. He is the I am. He's the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He is everywhere. He is in everything. We cannot capture him or narrow him down to an image. And so he doesn't want us to try. He wants us to understand just how big he really is. So he can't be narrowed down to a carved image. And he can't be manipulated into our debt. Yes, God wants to bless his people. Yes, God loves his people. Yes, God wants to take care of you as his child. But listen, 
If God needs to allow some suffering in your life for the sake of discipline, like from a good father, don't hear negative discipline. Good discipline from a good father because he loves you. Because he wants to draw you in, that's still a good thing. And you doing all the right things to try to prevent suffering, I mean, that's the wrong way to look at it. God will do the best for his children. So we don't worship him in the way that we want to be worshipped. We worship him for who he is, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. So we don't worship other gods. We don't give ourselves to idols. We don't make carved images, and we don't try to manipulate God into doing what we think is best. We trust him to do what is best. Now, a couple things I want to address that we could spend a lot of time, in, time on. We don't have time today, so I'm not going to dive too deeply. But I, I will say this. It says that God is a jealous God. And we, we can't just leave that there because some of you are like, what? But when we say je- God is jealous, get out of your mind the picture that most of us have about like a jealous boyfriend. It is wholly and completely different than that. Think about what jealousy would be if you took out all sin, all evil intent, all sin. All, anything bad out of jealousy, what would it look like? Listen, God knows that all these false gods are not only false, completely made up, and some of them are literally Satan and, and demons deceiving people and lying to them straight into hell. Now, do we want a God that just stands back and doesn't care about those things? He's calling us to worship him. He loves us enough to be jealous for us, to try to pull us away from hell, to try to pull us away from evil. They are lies, and there's a deceiver leading people straight to hell, and he's coming after us. We, and some people, we don't like the word jealous, but I think for those of us that know this story, we all love the story about God as a shepherd who leaves the 99 to go track down the one, don't we? That he'll leave the 99 to go get the one that is, that is lost, that, that he needs to go find because he loves them. That's what a jealous God does, right? We want him to go after the one. We want him to be jealous for us so we don't, we don't fall into hell, that we don't fall into evil. God's a jealous God and praise God for that. He wants his children. He loves his children. He's going to go after his children. He's going to go after his children. Secondly, the other hard thing in this text, it says that God punishes to the third and fourth generation, right? So that, that, what this is not exactly saying is that he punishes children to the third and fourth generation because of their grandparents or great-grandparents' sin. It sounds like that, doesn't it? But if you read Deuteronomy 24.16, or you read Ezekiel 18.20, or many other passages that I found, it literally says that God doesn't do that. That God doesn't punish the son for the evil of the father. Now, the son may experience consequences, right? Any of you ever felt the consequences of your parents' sin? Right? But God's not punishing you for their sin. So what is happening here? What God is telling us here is that generational sin is a very real thing. And some of you in this room have experienced that, haven't you? The sins of your fathers, of your grandparents, of your great-grandparents. Man, just working in the city and getting involved in people's lives, we can see how generational sin just devastates families. And what's so sad about that is people will grow up hating certain generational sins that are in their family, right? They'll hate it. But then you'll see them later when they become adult doing the exact same things. And then the thing that they hated, they're passing on to their children. And so what God is saying is that for those who hate me, generational sin is a very real thing and I'm going to punish it. It may be passed down from their father, but they're still responsible for their sin. For those who hate me, I won't pull back my wrath and my judgment for sin. Then he says, but. 
because that's not the main point God's making here. He's making that might be true. Yes, I will continue to punish sin because it's sin for those who hate me. But he's saying, but I have steadfast love for the thousands, meaning I have steadfast love for the multitude, for any of those who love me and keep my commandments. This is what we were singing about today, wasn't it? I love the songs that were picked today. Especially for us now, New Testament Christians, in Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter how much generational sin, it doesn't matter how much sin we've committed or our parents committed or grandparents committed, how long that process has gone, God can stop that process right now. It doesn't mean it's going to be easy, but in Jesus Christ, we are forgiven. We have his grace. He paid for it on the cross. So generational sin can be ended if we love Jesus and we place our faith in him. God will wash it away. That's steadfast love. The point is not that he punishes generation after generation after generation. The the point is that God will forgive any who come to him and love him and are faithful to him. Then let's look, that's the third commandment. Then let's look at the fourth one, the last one in our first section today. You shall not take the Lord's name in vain, verse 7. I think when nowadays, I may be wrong on this, but I think most people when they think of do not take the Lord's name in vain, they think don't use God's name as a cuss word. Right? Right? Don't, don't use it in that way. And listen, that's not wrong. Should we, should we be saying words, curse words with God's name in it or Jesus' name in it? Absolutely not. I think we all know that. Some of us got in the habit of using it. You need to stop. Honestly, I don't, I don't want to make light of that. Like, if you're using God's name like that ever, you need to stop. God takes us so seriously, he put it in the top 10 commands, right? How seriously his name is. This is not a light thing. I know in our culture it's like that all the time. It needs to stop. No matter what you think about cussing, I, don't, I can't believe I have to get in debates with people about cussing nowadays, but this is one that we, cannot, we could not and should not debate on. You should not use the, names, the Lord's name in any way at all. Not even something like, oh, good Lord. Don't do it. This is serious. This is the holy, reverent name of God. So serious that he presented his name to Moses at the burning bush and he took God's name to the people and the people believed Moses because he knew the name of God. This is a big deal. But in the context of the Hebrew, in this context, what it's, what it's really implying is don't use God's name in vain in a legal context. Meaning, don't say, I swear by God's name or, or shall he strike me down. Right? Again, that's trying to manipulate God into what you need or what you want. As Jesus says, let your yes be your yes and your no be your no. Don't swear by God's name. His name is reverent and holy and good and right. Don't use it flippantly. Use it reverently. But I think there's a little more going on with this command. So I'm, gonna, I'm just going to preface this. Whenever I do this, I tell you. I'm going to say something that's, about, that's, that's debatable. That's a little bit controversial. So here's what I want you to do. I'm going to say it because I, I think it's true. I think it's absolutely true. But I want you to get in the Word of God because I, I would love to spend a whole week on this. I don't have time. So I want you to get in the Word of God and decide for yourself whether what I'm about to say is true. Is that fair? Be like the Bereans. You get in the word. So I absolutely believe that using the Lord's name in vain is implying the things that we just said. But remember, in ancient times in particular, your name was a very big deal and it carried a ton of purpose. Look at the names in the Bible. They all mean something. They all carry a lot of weight. It matters. Now, we've said the book of Exodus is all about God's what? The book of Exodus is all about God's what? Glory. It's all about, the whole Bible is about God's glory, right? But this book in particular is about God's glory. 
God's glory going forth to the nations. Now, when God talks about his glory going forth to, to the nations, what's another way that he says that? Can you think of it? My what will go forth to the nations? Name. Thank you. I don't know who that was. Is that Kayla? Right? My name will go forth to the nations. So when you see the Bible say, my name will go to the nations, or later, my glory will go to the nations, it's an interchangeable thing. As God's name, like his name is a big deal, right? We don't use it in vain because it's not just God. It's his name. His name has power. As his name goes forth, his glory goes forth. So God's glory and his name are going forth to the nations because of what he's done to save Israel and to punish Egypt for their sins. Why that's so important is as we think about this command in the light of the first three commands, I think that this, this is saying not only don't take the Lord, your God's name in vain with your mouth, but with your life. Because his name represents you taking forth his glory. Church, how we speak, but also how we live, our actions are all a reflection of God's glory, aren't they? They're all a reflection of his name to the world. So it's not only not treating his name flippantly with what we say, it's not treating the fact that he's called you to be an ambassador to Christ to the world, not treating that flippantly or lightly, or the fact that he, not, or the fact that you, some of you treat sin lightly, even though Jesus Christ had to die on the cross to pay for your sins. God's own son had to die on the cross for your sins, but you treat it lightly because you're walking in a time of grace when God will just cover up your sin. No, your sin is serious and it carries weight. We need to take that serious, not make light of God. God, not make light, not take his name in vain because of the things he's done in his glory. So yes, I do think this is primarily talking about how we speak about God, but I also think there's a strong implication that it's about how we treat God's name with our whole lives and how we reflect his glory to the world. Is that fair? Now look at it for yourself and see if you agree with me or not. You're allowed to disagree with me on that, but I think that's what it's implying here in the context of the first three commands. All right. And then, uh, oh, sorry, the fourth one. That was the third one. Here's the fourth one. The Sabbath, verse 8. Now, this is unfortunate. There is so much we can say about the Sabbath. Like, we could go on and on and on about the Sabbath. It was a very big deal to the Jewish people. It was a very big deal to God. But we talked about it at length in our Trust and Rest series. So if you're new to Freshwater, you haven't heard it, you haven't heard it in a while, I want you to go back to our website when it gets back up. It's down right now. When our website gets back up, go to the Trust and Rest series. If you want to dive deeper into what Sabbath rest really looks like for us as New Testament Christians, it's Trust and Rest. The title of the sermon was Sabbath Rest. Because we, I just cannot do Sabbath justice today. I just can't. But I will say this. This command like the three commands before it, is about making God first in your life. That's what the Sabbath is about. Making God first in your life. To say to God, God, I trust you enough to rest when there are a million things that I could get done. I trust you enough to rest when I don't know how to get all this stuff accomplished. Listen, the, the Israelites were farmers. Do you think that farmers didn't have a ton they could do on their day of rest? Of course they did, right? God knows that there's always stuff for them to do. But he's saying, no, I want you to stop and I want you to rest. If I created all of the universe in six days and then left you with the example as I rested, you can too. We see Jesus leave us an example too. Jesus gets away and he rests. There's always thousands of people for him to heal or share the truth with. But what does Jesus sometimes do? Get away, rest, and spend time with his father. Why? Because he trusted him. He knew that spending time with his father was not time. Listen, church, 
Was not time wasted? As I said, you might have heard me say before, and I totally stole from another pastor. Sometimes in the New Testament, we see that the, only, the man that was saving the world sometimes acted like he wasn't saving the world. But with the way we treat our schedule, we act like we're saving the world. But Jesus didn't. We act like it's so important that we can't stop. The Sabbath is about trust. It's about letting go of control and believing that God's ways are better than your ways. See, and what's different for us in the New Testament is that Jesus is our Sabbath rest. Jesus is the fulfillment of what true rest is. It's truly meant to be rest for our souls. The Sabbath is meant to be a reflection of what the Garden of Eve was and what heaven will be. And Jesus is truly how we find true rest. But that doesn't mean that we still don't need to stop, church. To let go. And to have times where we stop and we rest our bodies and our minds, but also we rest our spirits in the Lord. That's what we're doing here today, right? Worshiping God for who he is. So yeah, even though Jesus is the fulfillment of the Sabbath, he is our true rest. And church, we still need to rest. We still need Sabbath rest. That's why I tell all of our leaders after, 12, after noon on Friday to noon on Saturday, don't text me, don't call me, don't, unless it's an emergency. That's my family time. That's my time to focus on the Lord. That's my time for me and my family to rest together. We take it seriously. And I think it's one of the main reasons while being a church planter, my family and my marriage has stayed really healthy. Praise God for that because we've treated this so seriously that we needed to stop and spend time with each other and rest and spend time with the Lord. All right, I could say so much more on the Sabbath rest, but we gotta keep going. But really in the end, it's just about trusting the Lord, letting go of control and believing his ways are better. Now, that's our first section for today, and it was by far the longest, so don't panic. The second section is way shorter. What did those first four commands have in common? Who said that? Man, man close to me. He said, it's about the love of God. They are all about how we properly worship and love God. Did you see that? That's why I say in your prayers, in your times, in everything— Always start with God. When Jesus tells us how to pray, what does he say? Hallowed be Father in heaven. Hallowed be your name. We always start with God. And this is telling us, this is how we properly worship and love God. Listen, God wants you to know how to love him. He wants you to know how to worship him. God does not want to be completely mysterious to you. He's God, so he is going to be mysterious in a lot of ways because he's God and we're not. But God wants you to know. He wants you to know him and how to love him and how to worship him. And listen, Here's the thing about the Ten Commandments. Don't think about them as a legal system. Because you think about the legal system in our country. Our country tries to have a law for every single thing any person could possibly do wrong, right? They need it, and they try to have a punishment for every possible thing that someone could do wrong. That's why the internet age has been such a disaster. Because people are doing things that everybody knows are morally reprehensible. But we can't, until we get a law on the books, we can't even punish them. Well, tons of people have gotten off on things that we all know are morally bankrupt because we don't have a law in the books, right? Then they change the law, they figure out how to punish it, and we move forward. God's law is not like that. God's law is a guideline. Absolutely, we need to follow the things that he says, right? Absolutely, we need to follow the things that he says. But it's not meant to cover every little thing. It's meant to be a guideline so that when things come up, 
That we have a foundation of holiness. We have a foundation of the love of God. We have a foundation for what worship looks like so that when, when things come up that the Bible doesn't address correctly, we'll make, be able to make good and right judgments because we know God. We know how to worship Him. We know how to love Him. And we know who we're supposed to be in Him. Does that make sense? I know some of you want God to tell you everything you're supposed to do, who you're supposed to marry, what job you're supposed to have, what, what, where you're supposed to live, what you're supposed to do. And yeah, we should pray that we could walk in the will of God and that God would reveal his will to us. But does that mean that every major decision in your life, God's going to come down like lightning and tell you what you should do? Some of the best advice I ever got from a, another pastor was, seek the Lord, seek his word, deep in prayer, seek wisdom from other Christians that love you and love God. Do everything you can to submit your life humbly to the Lord. And in the end, if it's not clear, do what you want. Do what you want. Do what you desire. You've sought the Lord. Then do what you desire. Because God's not going to tell you every little decision in his word. Because his, his law, his commands are a loving way to guide you. Not to control every little piece of your life. God wants us to make decisions. And the law gives us the foundation of what holiness, of what worship, of what love of God looks like. And this is extremely relevant even to us today. For when Jesus was asked what the greatest commandment is in Matthew 22, what did he say? Javi, can we get that slide? He said this. And he, Jesus, said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. Do you see what the first half of the Ten Commandments are pointing to? The first half of the Ten Commandments are literally giving us the foundation for how we can live that out. How we can love God like this. This isn't about good rule-following church. Do we need to follow God's commands? Yes. But do we need to follow God's commands to feel like a good person? No. Of course, following the commands will make us a better person. They'll make us better at worshiping God and loving God and following God. But that's not the point. God is trying to teach us what love looks like. This isn't about being good, but about experiencing God by understanding who he is and how we are to love and worship him. It's a big deal. Because as we learn to love God more rightly, we'll learn to love God, other people more rightly. As God pours his love into us, then we'll be able to pour our love into other people. And then we will experience God's hope and joy and fulfillment and, uh, through faith as he also is creating this boundary around us. Man, the law is to protect you, isn't it? Why is God putting this boundary around you? Why do you think God puts this boundary of his law around you? Because he loves you. Because he loves you. I used this example the other day. I think I've used this example before. We were playing basketball at John B. Hughes the other day. Right? The guys from Victory Mission there, from John B. Hughes, from our church were there. And some of the kids ran out of the basketball court and they started stealing balls and throwing them at each other and throwing them at the rim. And we were afraid we were going to hurt them because we were going to trample them. Right? But they were kids, so we had to be patient. And they didn't know the rules or care about the rules of the game. Do you think any, at that point anybody was having fun playing basketball? Do the rules somehow ruin basketball? Do they? No, if we don't have rules and everybody just grabs the ball and starts hitting each other and throwing each other and doesn't know where to go, it's just chaos and it's madness and it ruins everything. God creates laws around us not to take our freedom, but to set us free in what we are built to do. Basketball without rules is a disaster, and your life without rules is a disaster. And you don't believe that, come with me to Victory Mission, who guys who have come out of jail and addiction and homelessness and have had all the freedom they've wanted, and it's been a nightmare. Because we were not built to have 
There is no such thing as that kind of freedom. Freedom is in the Lord. Freedom is in holiness. And God's showing us how we can walk in it. By worshiping him rightly. The law is protection. The law is love. The law is freedom. The the psalmist or King David could say he delights in the law of God because the law shows him who his God really is and how to love him and worship him rightly and through that how to experience God's love more deeply. Praise God for the law. And what does Jesus say is the second greatest commandment? Javi, can we get the second part of that up there? I'll start at the beginning again. Matthew 22. And he said to him, Jesus, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. Not wholly different than the first command. It goes along with it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Listen, the prophets are the one who gave us the law. Moses is a prophet. So he's saying all of the law, all the, the law that we are talking about right now, all of it depends on this. It's all fulfilled in this. All the law is summed up in these two things. As we learn to love God, and through that, his love is poured into our hearts, what will the result of that be? We'll love other people more and more and more because God will transform our heart to understand his love. And we'll begin to walk in true grace and mercy and kindness and gentleness and the right kind of boldness like God does, like Jesus did. Now, if the first half of the Ten Commandments are about loving God rightly, what do you think the second half of the Ten Commandments are about? Read verse 12, chapter 20. Verse 12, we'll read through verse 17. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything else that is your neighbor's. Anything else that is your neighbor's possession. Now, what did all those things have in common? We look at them as laws, and they are, of what we're not supposed to do. But in the end, if you really look at them rightly, they're showing us how to love people well. That's what they're doing. And where does that start? Where does loving people well start? What's the first thing that they start with in these commands? Honor your father and mother. You know, to Jesus, this was a big deal. We'll, we'll, we'll see that Paul, the Apostle Paul, when he writes in the New Testament, honor your father, father and mother is a big deal. Big deal. I know in our culture, it doesn't seem to be a big deal anymore. It's a big deal biblically. Now, I want to be fair, in the biblical context, the main thing that we see in Scripture and this, this seems to point to is that as your parents get into their older age, you take care of them. They didn't have Medicare. Right? They didn't have Social Security and nursing homes. And so they were dependent on their children to take care of them. So that's part of this. But it's not all of it. It's also about forgiving our parents. See, here's the thing. Many of us in the room, I know, I know, I know a lot of your stories and and tons of people in this room have very complicated, very difficult, and I would say even terrible relationships with their parents. And and if we just thought of it the way the world thinks of it, some of your parents, like, like, don't deserve forgiveness and grace. They don't deserve it. They have not earned it. 
But if you remember something that I always say, grace and deserve have nothing to do with each other. God didn't give us what we deserve in Jesus Christ. He gave us a gift of grace, not what we deserve, just gave us a gift in love to leave us an example. Here's the thing, for anyone in this room that has a terrible relationship with their parents, I don't want to make light of any trauma that's happened. I, I don't want to imply that, that somehow, because you're supposed to honor your parents, that you don't have boundaries to protect you from toxic behavior and toxic emotions, right? We, I mean, it doesn't just say you just open the doors wide because you're supposed to honor your parents when, when they're really, really unhealthy or they're really, really toxic. And, and listen, um, we should try to seek reconciliation with everyone, right? We're to be ministers, of reconciliation. Like, that is like a role that we've given in Christ. Ministers of reconciliation. That's what you are in Christ. But some of you like, like literally can't reconcile with your parents because they have no interest in it. Right? And so the best that you can do right now is pray. But we can pray. Right? We can pray that God would open up our heart to for actually forgive. Because let's be honest, some of the things that parents have done abandoning-wise, abuse-wise, whatever else, they don't deserve forgiveness, and you may be able to forgive them, but in a week from now, you're going to have to forgive again. Is that not true? And that's okay. But we are to forgive, because God has forgiven us despite all the things that we have done. We can ask God to help us. All of us can do a better job of showing our parents honor whether they deserve it or not with the way we talk about them, with the way we think about them, with the way we communicate with our parents when we actually have the opportunity. Listen, how powerful a testimony would it be of God's love if some people around you, especially if you have a really difficult, maybe even terrible relationship with your parents, they knew your testimony, they knew where you came from, they knew what your parents have done, but they saw you still show honor to them. How powerful a testimony do you think that would be of God's love and grace and mercy, and believe you, I'm not saying this is easy. This may, this may take counseling for months or years to be able to really walk in, walk in this truly, but it's what God's called you to. When it comes to loving others as ourself, it starts with your family. It starts with your parents. It's a big deal scripturally. All right, for commandments 6, 7, 8, and 9, I'm going to lump them together, and some of you are like, it's 11, 15, Whew, right? I'm going to lump these last... Let, four of these last five together because in the end they're really communicating a similar thing. If we are going to love people well, we honor them by not taking what's theirs. Right? We do not murder. We do not take people's lives from them. We don't take them from their family. Now there's a whole different discussion to have about war and, and, and governments and all that stuff but when it comes to you, when it comes to you personally, the one thing that we can agree on scripture is you are not to kill, you are not to murder, you are not to rob somebody of their life and their family of that life. That's one. The second one's actually like it. You're not to try to take someone else's spouse. God has called us to have sex in a particular way with our spouse, and you're not supposed to do it any other way. Do not try to take someone else's spouse, someone that God has made, has made two people one. Don't break up what God has made one. Don't break up what God has made one. Next, don't take someone's property and try to claim it as your own. That brings them harm. That's dishonest. Don't take what is someone else's property. And then lastly, don't try to take someone else's reputation by bearing false witness about them, by lying about them or lying about what they did or lying about what really happened. A just society, a society built on justice, a fair society, a loving society is built on honesty, integrity, and honor. 
And without those things, a society starts to fall apart. And have we not seen that happening in our culture right now where honor has been completely lost? We do not honor each other anymore. Honestly, we don't even care about people's reputations anymore. We'll lie about their reputation. Well, they're a liar, and they've done this, so I'm going to say this, and I'm going to say this. Yeah, I know it's an exaggeration of the truth. I know it's hyperbole. I know it's not really true, but did you hear what they did? That's where we are. And the moral fabric of our society is unraveling, is it not? A, A moral society is built on these things. So God is saying, if you want to love your neighbor well, don't harm them by trying to rob them of what is theirs and trying to claim it as your own or for your own gain or because of your own selfishness. Love your neighbor as yourself. And then lastly, we have do not covet. If the first commandment is kind of the foundation for all the other commandments, this one is the practical application of all the commandments. It's the practical application. Listen, us coveting what we don't have, when I say coveting, strongly desiring something that's not ours or that we think we should have, right? Us coveting what we don't have or what someone else has or something that we feel like we deserve is at the heart of so much sin. It is at the heart of so much sin. So instead of making God first in our lives and desiring the things of God and what he wants for our lives and finding contentment in what God wants for our lives, our hearts long for something that they long more than him. It goes back to the same thing as idol worship, right? We create idols in our life and they become more important than God. It's, it's the one command in the second half of the commandments about how we love our neighbors ourselves that doesn't have anything to do with actions. It has to do with your heart. And that's why I say it's at the root of so much sin, And not only sins against God, but obviously sins against others. Our hearts long to have what we don't have. And if we see it in others, and we long to have what they have, whether that be reputation or possessions or a spouse or money or whatever else, then if we start coveting what they have, it it makes it almost impossible for us to love them. It makes it, makes it almost impossible for us to love them. And so it leads to bitterness and resentment and anger, and the wrong kind of jealousy, and selfishness, and so many other toxic emotions robbing us of the ability to love. And again, we have an entire culture built almost on this concept alone. What if you could have what they have? What if you could have this thing to fill your heart up? What if... Hey, church, it's the American dream. And we're getting lost in it. Coveting makes God secondary. And making God secondary is the root of all sin. God wants you to honor your parents. He wants you to not kill. He wants you to not steal. He wants you not to sleep with someone who is not your spouse. He wants you not to lie, particularly lie about others. And he doesn't want you to covet. Why? Because he loves you. Because he loves you. Those things will lead you down the wrong path. They'll lead you to evil. They'll lead you to sin. They'll lead you to devastation. They'll lead you, listen, to hell. And God is jealous for your soul. He is jealous for your heart. He wants you to be in eternity with him forever. He doesn't want your heart to be robbed of the ability to love him and to love others. And coveting in particular makes God secondary, but all of these other things are wrapped up in a heart that longs for something other than God. 
We were built to worship God. We were literally created to give him glory, to love him, to have his love fill us, and then to pour out that love into other people. That's what worship really is. Man, as we go through the book of Exodus, we're going to see all of these detailed ways that God's commanding them to worship him, right? And there's lots of different ways we can worship him, but that's what it comes down to. Love God with everything in you and love your neighbor as yourself. That's worship. So in the in church, the point I really want you to walk away with today is that this is about love. The Ten Commandments are about love. And you may have never thought about it that way in your entire life. Loving God with all your heart, loving God with all your soul, all your mind, all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Because God wants you to be a people that do not look like the world. That's what all these laws are about. I said it last week. He wants you to be set apart. He wants you to be holy so that you might reflect his glory. Listen, his name to a lost and broken world that desperately needs him, that desperately needs Jesus, that desperately needs you to make this first in your life so more people might know him, so more more people might worship him. This is why people like King David could say, I delight in your, in your law, for he knows what so many of us have missed, that the law leads to the heart of God. And the heart of God leads us to everything else we need right now and we will need for an, an eternity. Listen, the, the greatest commandment we heard from Jesus and the Ten Commandments don't give us every answer, right? But here's what I think. And if we really took time to dwell on what Jesus said, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength. If we really thought about what does that mean in my life? What does it look like for me to give my life to God that way? And if we truly took to heart, love your neighbor as yourself. And then we looked at these 10 commandments. They're not complicated, are they? But we started looking at them and studying them and dwelling on them. Like, what does it mean not to covet? What does it mean to make God first? What does it mean to make sure there's no idols in my life? What does it mean to do these things? You know what I think? I think that we would barely need the rest of the Bible. Is that not a bold statement? I think this is the foundation for everything we need. That's why Jesus could boldly proclaim, love God and love people. The whole law is summed up in these things. Through the power of the Holy Spirit in us, by by the example left by Jesus and the Ten Commandments, that sums up almost everything in our faith. And of course we need, need more details, and of course we need other things. But if we just took these things to heart by the power of the Holy Spirit, we'd be on the right path. We'd be on the right path. So church, that's what I'm asking you this week. Deeply think about the greatest commandment that Jesus gave to us. Deeply think about these 10 commandments and then actually look at your life. Look at your life and don't look at, listen, hear me right now. Don't you dare look at your life with guilt and shame dwelling on the past and how bad you've been. This is about setting you free in the love of God. Yes, take your sin seriously. Yes, take the law seriously. But let it draw you to the throne of Christ so you can take that weight of not being good enough and lay it down before the cross. Let Christ bear it for you because he was good enough for you so that you might move forward. As Paul says, forgetting what lies behind, straining forward to the upward call of God. God has plans for you, church. God loves you, church. God wants to use you, church. He wants you to be an ambassador for Christ, a minister of reconciliation. And it all comes by knowing how to love and worship him well. And the foundation is laid right here. Take it seriously. And there is no telling who you can be and who we can be for the name of the Lord. Let's pray. Oh God, you are so gracious to us. God, I look at this list of 10 commands. 10 commandments, the simplest thing in the world, just 10. And I've broken them in my life again and again. I can't be faithful, and I can't always be faithful even to 10 commands. 
Yet, God, I praise you because your grace is more. Jesus, I praise you because your mercy is more than my failure. Thank you for coming and being enough for me. Thank you for coming and showing that the law isn't about me being good, but that, Jesus, you came to be the fulfillment of all the law to be good enough for us, to be good enough for me. For I need salvation, and you have saved God, if there's anyone in this room that doesn't know you, I pray their hearts would be stirred to give their life to you and see your goodness, even in your law. That your law is to protect and to love and to set free and to move us forward in who you are. God, I pray they would give their lives to you, believe in Jesus as their Savior, and join the family of God. For the rest of us in this room, I pray today that, that shame and guilt for not being good enough would not be the way, way we leave this room today, but we would look at the law and, say, and think, man, God loves me. He wants to protect me. He wants me to know how to worship him and love him, so I'm going to give my heart to do that thing, that we might move forward to the call that you have on our lives. God, help us to take these things seriously. Help us to take love seriously and holiness seriously and your law seriously so that we might know you more, that we might worship you rightly, and that we might display your glory and your great name to the world. Thank you for this time to worship you, Lord. Thank you for your Holy Spirit that empowers us, is with us, and guides us. We pray that you continue to help us as we walk on this journey to love you more and to shine your radiant glory to the world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.